In John's telling the gospel, Jesus is always guiding the narrative. You picked up on this, haven't you? Uh, In this passage, of course, but in other passages as well, Jesus is the one that's in charge. Uh, Just a chapter later, when Jesus is preparing to feed the multitudes, he asks Philip that question, where are we to buy bread for these people to eat? But it wasn't really a question that Jesus was worried about. In fact, it goes on to say that he said this to test Philip, for he himself knew what he was going to do. And you remember when he uh, cleansed the blind man in such a way as to restore his sight, um, he said even before the event of that healing that he did this in order that righteousness might be fulfilled in this way. He knew, Jesus knew these miracles that were about to take place, which is a strange way for us to have to mold those thoughts into what the scripture actually says in verse 4 here. And that is, as Regina has read from the King James Version, that he must needs go through Samaria. In the New Revised Standard Version, it says simply, it says he had to go through Samaria. Well, Jesus didn't have to go anywhere he didn't want to go. He didn't have to go anywhere he did not want to go. If Jesus went through Samaria, it was because he chose to go through Samaria. In fact, it was in the day of Jesus that people were avoiding Samaria, which was right there, this this section within the center of the nation of Israel, that they were avoiding it like the plague because they didn't want to go through Samaria. And so they they patterned their their commerce, they patterned their travel to go right up next to the Jordan River in order that they might not pass through this land of the outcasts. They didn't want to deal with it. They were going to take all opportunity to avoid it if it was up to them. This goes way back into the history, and I'll try to avoid giving a complete history lesson here. But some of you will remember how Assyria in the 8th century before Jesus They came in and they overtook the country with their power, their military might. They just had had it with this little upspring nation. And so they did them in. They took all of the leaders and most of the populace back with them on a trip of exile. Now, when they took them away, they didn't get everybody. In fact, Assyria was not interested in those who were of no power within the nation. And so they left a large group of persons that were scattered throughout the country and even in the cities that were of no use to Assyria. When they did, though, get the power elite into Assyria, Assyria was smart. They knew that they had left a vacuum there. And so what they did was to re-immigrate this place. They resettled it with people from the nations that they had already conquered. It was a dire situation for Israel to be repopulated with people that did not know the faith and were not faithful to Yahweh in ways that they had grown to learn and love. And so when they came into the nation, what happened was that those that were left behind and those that were new to come began to mix and mingle, as always happens in cultures. That happens right here in Statesboro. There's all kinds of mixing and mingling with cultures. But there in Israel, what happened was the mixing and mingling of these religious persons 
that looked at God so differently. Over the time that they had together, they began to see each other as persons rather than just religious entities. And they began to intermarry one with the other. That's all they had was each other. When the exile was over and the power elite came back from Assyria to their home country, what they saw was astounding to them. That those that they might have hoped would carry on the faith for them while they were gone, while they were carrying on as faithful people in exile, had not done that, not in the way that they had hoped. In fact, this intermingling was confusing and disconcerting to them. They had become half-breeds. There was such a mixture of culture. And it was more than frustrating to the faithful. They didn't want to have anything to do with it. They came up with names for them. People of the land, they called them. Birds of the air, they called them. You remember that statement that the woman names herself. She said, even the dogs under the table gather up the crumbs. She was naming what was well known in that culture, that these were people of of no regard. They were the dirt. They were the outcast of society, even naming themselves that. If Jesus went through Samaria, it was because Jesus chose to go through Samaria. It was not because of the geography. It was not because of his timeline. You remember in this story, he stayed two days extra once he got there. Two days longer with these people. Jesus chose to go through Samaria because there was some kind of divine origin, divine initiative that he had in going there. The town's name was Sychar. And it was the site of Jacob's well history in and of itself where Jacob met Rachel what a fascinating story Jesus showed up around noon and there at the well he is waiting he is tired he is thirsty he's just sitting there hoping that somebody might show up knowing that somebody will show up and there a woman shows up she hasn't come at the regular time that women would show up She didn't come in the morning with those children that might have been sent out to get water. She had not come the night before with the women who might have come to gather water for the next day. She was utterly alone. Now, we read a lot into this. We think to ourselves, well, there must have been a great reason that she was alone. In fact, many preacher has preached her into being a harlot for years and years and years. But we don't know that. You read the scripture closely. We do not know that about this woman. All we know is that her situation was dire. In fact, her story may have just been tragic. We don't know any more than that. We know that she was divorced. But we don't know the nature of her divorces. Actually, we don't even know that she was divorced. All we know is that she had had previous husbands. Was it the case that she had been widowed this many times? We don't know that. Do we know if she had been abandoned by husbands that had seen her as being unmanageable at a certain point for whatever reason? Her life was too much for them. I don't know. We don't know about this. There was a, a lady who was a part of the congregation that I served who was so taken with Christ that she had given her life completely to being this entity of mission and outreach 
in the community where the church was and also uh, internationally. She would go on trips to Haiti herself and began to develop this mission group that would go to Haiti. Her calling, her, her giftedness was with sewing. She was talented with sewing. And she loved to share that. She came up creatively with the idea that maybe there is something that can be given more than just the fabric that is sent, sewed together in the form of cloth that would bless these children that are in Haiti. And she, it came to her that if she could train the people in Haiti to sew for themselves, that they could not only provide for the children that were there, but they could develop a cottage industry. And so she had no sewing machines. You know what she requested from the church, don't you? Sewing machines. And when we gave her sewing machines, she found out that she could not take new sewing machines into Haiti. Satan's always going to throw a curveball. Cannot take new sewing machines into Haiti. So she said to herself, how can we make these used machines? And she began to develop a sewing ministry among our youth there, teaching them on these nice new machines how to sew. They had never sewn before in their lives. But she was teaching them how to sew. And when they got through with their class, their sewing class, she boxed those machines right back up. She took them to Haiti. She unboxed them in Haiti. These were used machines, but lightly used. Those people there adopted these machines. You know what she did? She had them making pocketbooks. Nice pocketbooks. She brought the pocketbooks home to us. Guess what we were purchasing for Christmas? <laughs> pocketbooks from Haiti. When she gathered the money from the sale of the pocketbooks, guess what she did with the sale? The money. She bought more sewing machines. It was this creative circle that God was doing in her. It was a beautiful thing to see. I was sitting in my office with her one day and we were talking about this mission. And in the process of that conversation, she mentioned something about her former husband. And then a little further in the conversation, she mentioned another, another former husband, not previously referred to as her former husband. And I looked at her and I said, I said, how many husbands have you had this was not a Jesus kind of question you know but it sounds like that now that we're into the story how how many times have you been married I said and she looked at me and she said oh preacher you don't want to know I didn't ask anymore and I thought to myself does it matter right now what is the former life and what is the present life with Christ, all things are renewed. And she was so driven by her love for Christ and her willingness to give of her time and her effort in his service. Jesus was there and he asked her for water. I can just imagine in her mind that she said, Really? <laughs> really? <laughs> 
come on, you being who you are, me being who I am, you being a Jew, not only a Jew, but a rabbi asking a woman, and I not only being a woman, but being an outcast. You ask me for water? And Jesus' response is so wonderful. Oh, if only you knew who were asking you, you would ask him for living water. And I don't know if she's playing with him now, knowing that she's accepted just by the very conversation that's taking place. But she responds and said, what is this living water, you know? Is she thinking about a spring water of some sort? Is she thinking about an artesian well, something that just wells up all of the time, you know? Is always available? She knows one thing without a doubt, that Jesus is not judging her. That Jesus has accepted her in her place, even though her community may not have accepted her fully. Although that's in question because the first people that she goes to, once she realizes who Jesus is, she goes to her community and they listen to her. So again, what are our preconceived notions about this woman? She was a part of her community enough that they paid attention and came at her bequest. It was this sharing there at the well. My father's mother and dad lived in an old house up in Cartersville, Georgia. And at the end of their side porch, toward the back of the house, there was a well. And at that well, there was a bucket. And tied to the bucket was a large rope that was around a wooden spindle. The bucket could be lowered into the well and then drawn back up and set on the wooden table that was right next to the well. And then when someone was thirsty, they would get the ladle. They would get the ladle, which was there by the bucket. They would dip into the bucket and they would drink the water. If somebody else was thirsty, the ladle would be passed in. I don't remember anyone wiping the edge of the ladle. But the ladle was passed family and friends to whoever might be thirsty, and it was dipped into the same bucket, and it was received. There was this shared existence on that porch, a beautiful shared existence, and affirming of all that were present. Jesus was reaching out to this woman. He was reaching out to her, no matter what her sin. He was reaching out to her, no matter how she might have been outcast. He was reaching out to her in her poverty, the poverty of her life, to care for her and to embrace her, not to judge her, but just to draw her into the loving nature of God. You remember the story that was just previous to this one, don't you, in John's telling, the conversation with Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You know this story, don't you? This was the very nature of who Christ was. There will always be people that haunt the edges of society. And you and I can choose whether we will pay attention to our responsibility 
to be Christ to them and even to allow Christ in them to be present to us. She went back to her village. She did not speak triumphantly to them. She was still in the process of discovering herself. She spoke very honestly, non-judgmentally, toward a town that might have judged her even. She simply said, this cannot be Christ. Can it? And they came to see. It was invitational, non-judgmental. No ultimatums, no threats. Some Christians get it all wrong in the way to relate to the world around us. We get it all wrong. Jesus cared about the outcasts. How is it the church could get this wrong? How is it that we could miss that priority and not include those who are outcast? ourselves as we come to his table may we honor him with our thoughts our words our actions this day